Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you've joined us today. As we get started this morning, I want, to, I want us to read together the, uh, the theme verses for our message series. They're found in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. We're going to project the words on the screen behind you so you can join me as we read. So let's read this together as we get started this morning. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the kind of peace that we're talking about this series is, is obviously God's peace, the peace of God. And that's very different than normal peace. Normal peace is situational. In other words, it's attached to our surroundings. And so if, if our surroundings are peaceful, then we're peaceful. If our surroundings are not, then we're not. And so it goes up and down as our life goes up and down. But the peace of God is the kind of peace that's given in every situation. It's peace under pressure, which is the name of the series. Now, our guide is not just these verses. Our guide is the entire book of Philippians for this message series. And we began three weeks ago in this series uh, by first identifying the zone of God's peace. Uh, the peace of God, as it says in this verse, guards our hearts and minds in Christ. In order to guard you have to, to keep someone or something within inside the borders. And so to experience God's peace, we must keep our, our minds, our, the way we think, and our hearts, what we value, inside the borders of God's peace. And so we identified what those borders were. Then last week, we looked at the plan behind the pressure. We can put up with a tremendous amount of pressure as long as we know there's a point to it, there's a purpose to it. Uh, oftentimes we hear the phrase, everything happens for a reason. Well, last week we looked at what that reason is. Today we're turning our attention to the posture of peace. Whenever the pressure goes up in our life, we, we have a normal stance, and that is to kind of push back against it or to, to fight it, to resist it. But pressure is, is kind of like the vice grip in the graphic that we're using for this series. It, it just keeps mounting because it is steel and we are not steel. And so you can push back all you want on the pressure of life, and it oftentimes it just won't yield. In fact, the harder you push back sometimes, the more painful the pressure gets. And so the posture of God's peace is summarized in one word, and that's the word humility. As the pressure goes up, we need to get low. We need to lower ourselves in humility. Now, humility is not what most people think it is. It's not a passive response to pressure. It's not a kind of roll over and, and give up kind of attitude. No, humility is a, a very aggressive and active set of responses to the pressures of life. Pride comes natural to us. We, I don't need to teach on pride. I don't need to practice it. We don't need to work on it. It, it just rises in our hearts and our lives naturally. But humility is very unnatural to us. It's kind of like walking on our hands. It's not something that you just naturally do. It's it's something that, that you must practice and you must work on repeatedly in order to gain humility. And in the passage we're going to look at today, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8, it identifies four postures of humility, four exercises, four practices that, that we can do regularly uh, to be humble. Now, th these are good at any time in life, but especially when the pressure mounts, these are the four postures you want to take uh, in response to the pressure. So let's look at these. Number one, looking up, looking up. And by the way, these postures are external postures of the body, but they represent internal conditions of the heart. So obviously, I'm not saying you, you get your, your body in this position. If you just look up, you're not automatically humble. It's, it's to give you a, a physical representation of what humility looks like. 
So let's look at verse 1. Philippians 2, verse 1 says this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And then we're going to pause right there and pick it up in a little bit. The church of Philippi that this letter was written to was under a great deal of pressure. Nero, the Caesar at the time, is, is on a rampage against Christians. In fact, Nero was the one, probably uh, maybe one or two years after this letter was written, he is the one who dipped Christians alive in oil and used them to light the Appian Way outside of Rome. It was a horrible uh, oppression against Christians. And the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this church in northern Greece, Philippi, uh, and he's writing from prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial before Nero. So both Paul and the people that he is writing this letter to are experiencing what are probably the darkest days of their entire lives. And that's why when you understand the context, these words seem so odd. Encouragement, comfort, fellowship, tenderness, and compassion are, are completely foreign to their environment. Their situation is the exact opposite. Their situation is discouraging and painful and lonely and harsh. So what is Paul talking about here? You see, Paul realizes that both for himself as well as for them is that, that peace was not going to occur as they looked out on their situation, as they looked out on their surrounding. They were going to gain no peace from that. And so he tells them instead to look up, to, to fix their gaze on God and to remember some of the blessings that God has given them in Christ. He asks them to pause and, and take some time to consider God and, and all that he has given them. He says, you know, first of all, you're united with Christ. You have decided to link your life, present and future, to Jesus Christ. And that's, that's changed your eternity. Not only because of that has your sin been forgiven, because his payment is now credited to your account, but, but you have his help now, and you have all of eternity to spend with God because of this. So be encouraged. You've been united with Christ. And not only that, you, you are loved by Christ. Not just kind of a thumbs up, you know, Jesus likes you, but so much that he actually died to save you. You can't ever ask anyone to love more than that. God doesn't just like you. He's willing to go to tremendous lengths to save you in Christ that you're loved. And now you've got fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In other words, because of Jesus Christ, now for the first time in history, God's presence can actually take residence inside your heart. And that, that creates all kinds of help and opportunities. That, that fellowship, that back and forth with God is, is a blessing that very few people will get. But you have that fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And this is all true, not because you are the moral elite of the, of the time. It's all because of God's tenderness and compassion towards you. It's because of his mercy in your life. And so what he's saying is that, think about these things. This is what's been given to you. Now let me ask you this. Do you think that as they considered these things, that it made them feel completely better about their situation? Probably not. I mean, they're under more pressure than I've ever been under, and I know when I'm under pressure, I, I can think these thoughts, and, and there's, there's just a little bit of encouragement, but then I kind of fix my gaze back around me, and, and life is still really hard, and the pressure kind of begins to overwhelm again. But I want you to notice the word any in this first verse. If you have any encouragement from this, if there's, there's any comfort from the fact that God loves you enough to have sent his son to die for you, if there's any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is helping you in any way on the inside, if there's, 
there's any tenderness and compassion, if you're, you're sensing God's compassion for you, just even a little bit. Well, let me ask you, how much is any? Doesn't take much to have any, right? I mean, the smallest possible amount qualifies for any. You see, in the moment, it, it may not seem like much for them to pause and to look up and to consider these things. Just like in the moment of the pressure you're under, it, it may not seem like it's going to help that much just to, to pause for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes and, and fix your gaze up. It, it may not seem like that's a big deal. But you see, all it takes is just a little perspective shift to begin to bring the peace of God. Just a little encouragement. Just a little comfort. Just a little fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Just a little tenderness and compassion can, can really shift your perspective and begin to bring God's peace. Now, looking up will not happen automatically. It, it's a choice that we have to make. It's a, it's a posture of humility, a decision of humility. Now, Jesus was our example in this of how he humbled himself when he was here on earth. He, he did this often. One example of it is found in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus did this repeatedly. You see this pattern throughout the Gospels. In fact, on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had invited his disciples with them, with him, three of them with him to pray with him, and they were too tired, they fell asleep, but, well, he spent hours praying, because he knew the pressure that he was about to face was like nothing he'd ever experienced, and so he began by, by looking up to his father and getting help. Now, he was God in flesh, but while he was on earth in the pressure cooker of this world, he needed to humble himself and look up to his father often. So, if Jesus needed to do this, how much more do we need to do this on a regular basis, to set aside time daily, to, to pause and to, to fix our gaze up by, by reading God's word and listening to what he has to say, and then by praying to him. This doesn't have to be a long time. It can be 20 minutes. It can be 30 minutes. It can be longer if you want, but, but just to pause and to look up. In fact, if, if you'd like to learn more about how to do this, we've got a, a growing class that's uh, on two Sundays in February, the 7th and the 14th. Uh, during this service, the second service in our annex right next door. So you can, you can sign up for that class. It's two Sundays, and I would encourage you to take that. There's, there's more on the tools and how to begin to do this. This is a discipline of humility. Now, let me be honest, for me personally, whenever the pressure in my life tends to go up, my tendency is to skip this looking up practice, to skip my time with God. And the reason is because in order to look up, you have to stop what you're doing. I mean, if, if I'm just physically, if I'm walking this way and I decide to look up, I automatically stop because I don't want to walk off this stage. And the same thing is true in life. If, if you're going to take time to, to look up and get your perspective uh, right with God, you're going to have to stop what you're doing. And whenever you're under pressure, if you're like me, you have more to do, not less. And so it just takes a discipline of humility to put your life in a larger context and say, you know, I'm not going to be able to solve everything in this. I'm not in charge of this life. I need to check in with the one who is. I need to put my heart in the, in the framework of a larger perspective. But it takes, it takes discipline, and it takes trust. Oftentimes, in a, a moment of pressure, I'll be sitting there, and almost every five minutes, the thought is, i got to get going. This day's taken off. i got to get going. I, got, I, don't, I don't have time to do this. And it's just a continual fight to say, humble yourself. Just, just 10 more minutes. Humble yourself. 
and then charge after the day. So we, we have to, to look up in the middle of pressure. The second posture is walking behind. This is the posture of following. So what it says in verse 1 basically is if you've gained any perspective, any God perspective by taking the time to look up, then, now it says in verse 2, Philippians 2, 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So the idea is this. First, you humble yourself by looking up to God and putting your life into the larger context, a larger context than just you. You're not at the top. God is. So first, you humble yourself by doing that. Then you take the next step of humility, which is what? Well, you're like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. You can't do this by yourself. So who are we to be united together with? Well, Paul is writing this to a church, the church at Philippi. So what does it look like for a church to be united? Well, you have to. Here's the list. You have to be like-minded, which means that you all agree on what to do. Not, not just generally, but specifically. You know, in any organization, if you're going to do something, you, you have to agree on, on what's going to get done. So you have to be like-minded. Number two, you have to have the same love. You have to agree. All of you have to agree on what's important. And then number three, you have to be one in spirit and purpose, which means out of all of the possible agendas that a church could pursue, everyone has to agree on which ones we're pursuing. Now, let me ask you this. How could this possibly happen? I mean, those of you that are married, it's just two of you. Does this happen naturally? I mean, you wake up in the morning and say, you know what? We're of the same mind. And we've got the same thing in our hearts, and, and we are absolutely, we don't even need to talk. We're just united in, in purpose and spirit. No. I mean, throughout the day, you've you got to keep trying to figure out how are we going to get on the same page here and, and what's going to happen. So how can a church like that one or like this one with 900 plus people ever be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose when two people who have decided to commit their life to each other can't get on the same page naturally? How does that actually occur? Well, the only way that's possible is if some in the church lead with a good heart and a bunch in the church decide to follow with a good heart. And this is where humility comes in. That takes an incredible amount of humility to pull off. You see, it's one thing to be humble before God, the God that you can't see, and follow Him. But it's an entirely other thing to be humble before someone that you can see and follow them in the context of the church. We don't like to walk behind. We prefer to walk out front. I mean, at a minimum, we'll walk beside, but we really don't want to walk behind. We don't want to follow. But that's how God decided to accomplish his agenda on earth. And this is fascinating. Instead of leading us just one-on-one, -on -one, he set up churches like Philippi and here and other places, and he calls these churches the body of Christ. Now, what that means is that if you want to follow Christ, you have to find a church and follow him there. I mean, when Jesus walked earth, if you said, I'm going to go follow Jesus, the next question is, so where is he? You have to go to where his body was and follow him. Now that he's left planet earth, his body is represented in his church. So if you're going to actually follow Jesus, you can't do it independent of the church. Now, why doesn't God just lead us directly? Why, why not just lead us one, to, one by one? Why not just the, the first step of humility where we look up and we check in and we, we, as best we can, we try to get direction and instruction from God because he does give that. Why, why doesn't he just lead us one-on-one? -on -one? Why, why 
in the context of following in the church? Well, the reason is because if you only follow God one-on-one, it's very, very easy to pretend follow and not really follow. Why is that? Well, imagine if you worked at a business where the boss was never seen, but everyone reported directly to the boss. That's kind of like it is with God. He's the boss. Nobody's seen him, but we all report to him directly. Well, imagine a business that was run like that. No one ever saw the boss, but everyone pick up the phone and get instructions from the boss directly. What would happen over time in that business? Well, given human nature, lots of people would start doing whatever they wanted to do, saying that it's the boss that told them to do it. And they might even be convinced about it. This is what we we all, just, just by human nature, what we all tend to do in our relationship with God. We project what we think and what we want to do on God. We, we sign his name to our big ideas. And we're able to convince ourselves that God's okay with it, whatever we're doing, because he never shows up physically to say, what are you doing? Uh, I thought you were, I'm not okay with that. He, he never shows up physically to do that. You just, if you work in a business and you kind of run your own thing, eventually the one in authority is going to come in and say, what are you doing? You're supposed to be doing this, not this. Well, I thought, well, it doesn't matter what you thought. This is what you need to do. But because God never shows up to do that, we can all get away with kind of putting God's name to whatever we want to do and think. This is why God leads us through the church. It's the main way the invisible God can help us when we get off track and and get us back on track. But in order for that to happen, humility has to become real for us. You can't pretend follow in a church. You have to really, really follow. Now, that doesn't mean you check your brain at the door and say, okay, whatever. No, you you choose a church wisely, and you ask questions, and you want to be sure the leaders are leading in line with Scripture. But within those parameters, you're willing to say, okay, I'll be a part. I'll follow. I'll, I'll, I'll go along. So let me ask you a couple of questions that, that get very specific on this. Where are you following? That's question number one. Where, where is it that you're following? In other words, what church is it that you're a part of in which you're following? Because you, you can't follow God at large. That's, that's not available in the Bible. You follow God in the context of the church. And the reason is because if you're really following, both you and the person that you're following have to be in the same location long enough in order for you to really know who they are and for them to really know who you are. We, we live in an age right now of, of Christian rock stars. What I mean by that is there's a lot of amazing Christian speakers that most of them have written some really good books. And a whole lot of them can be watched on TV, and, and if they're in town, they, they can fill up stadiums, some of them. And there is a tremendous amount that we can learn from them, and their books can be very helpful. Not all of them, but a whole bunch of them can be very helpful. But the problem is you can't follow any one of these people. The reason you can't follow them is you don't know them. I mean, you know the way they present themselves and the stories they tell and the way they look on TV, but you don't know their life. You don't know where they live. You don't know their kids. You don't know their marriage. You don't know them. And they don't know you. So you you can't really 
follow him. In fact, at a church this size, not everyone can follow me. There, there's a bunch of people that can, that can really know me and I can really know them, but that's why there's a bunch of leaders in the church. So within the framework of the church, there's a lot of opportunities to follow. And that brings us to the second question. Who are you following? So where are you following? You know, what church and who at that church are you following? In other words, who, who are you asking input for as you, as you make decisions in life? And, and, and these are people that the input actually has the power to maybe change your thinking and change your direction. If no one has the power to influence your thinking, then you're not, you know, at best you're walking alongside, but, but you're not walking behind. So who are you asking for input that can really change your direction? And, and who is it? I mean, what's the name? You know, just in your mind, what's the name of the person or persons who has the permission to give you that kind of input? And, and if, you're, if you're not really sure, it's kind of vague or you can't think of a name, then it's quite possible you're not really, really following. Now, I know it takes a ton of humility, and it's as unnatural for an American to follow as it is for us to walk on our hands. But it's the posture of humility, walking behind. Posture number three, kneeling down. This is the posture of serving. Let's continue, verses 3 through 5 in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus is the example on this. Much of the pressure that we experience in life comes from relationships. Not all of it, but a bunch of it does. And, and the reason that we have so much pressure in relationships is because all of us tend to be prideful. It's arrogance that causes so much of the, the conflict in relationships. And there, there's two pieces of our relational arrogance that are identified in this verse. Piece number one is selfish ambition, and piece number two is vain conceit. Now, ambition is the drive towards a goal. You know, you're ambitious when you, you know what you want and you're going after it. And that's a good thing. It's good to have ambition and, and drive in life. But selfish ambition basically says that, that your agendas are pretty much focused on whatever you want. You're driven towards advancing what you want, and it's pretty much all about you. You, you really don't consider, and you, you, you ignore what other people want. Your, ambitious is, your ambition is selfish. Whatever you want, that's what you're going to go after, and that's what you want everyone in your life to help you with. Your life really is only about you. Now, most people agree still that it's not good to be selfish. We haven't gotten to the point in our culture where selfishness is, you know, um, applauded. Everyone still kind of realized that that's not, that's not good to be selfish. So is selfishness rare then? Oh, no. No, again, because it just naturally rises in our heart. Well, why, why, why isn't selfishness rare? Well, it's because of the second term, vain conceit. Vain conceit justifies selfish ambition. It's, it's the one that, that gives selfish ambition a reason to be selfish, so you can think of it this way. Selfish ambition is what I want. Vain conceit is why I deserve it. It's, it's the power behind the selfish ambition. It's why selfish ambition doesn't back off and say, you know what, I'm just being selfish, sorry. No, in vain conceit, we have the right and we deserve what we're pursuing. Now, to be vain is to raise yourself up above. To be conceited is the counterpart, kind of the other side of the coin. It's to look down on others. 
So vain conceit is the act of, of elevating yourself, of promoting yourself. And the reason we do that is because the higher we are, the more we deserve. That's just, we know that's the way life works. I mean, if, if you work at a company, the higher you are in that company, the more money you deserve. You know, the, the, the higher your position, the bigger your salary and the more power that you have. We, we understand that's just the way life works. If, if, I, if I can be promoted, then, then I deserve more. So vain conceit is the thought process of convincing yourself why in this particular situation what you want is more important than what anyone else wants. Now, usually we're not so conceited where we think we're the most important person on the planet. But what happens is from situation to situation, our mind goes to work to explain why, well, yeah, not in everything, but in, at this point, I deserve this. And everyone else's ambition should stand down because uh, mine's more important. It's, it's self-promotion. Now, the reasons why, the reasons why we think we're justified usually contain words that end with E-R. In other words, what I mean, let me give you some examples. Now, I know you want what you want, and I want what I want, but in this particular situation, I need, I need to push what I want because I am smarter, right? I'm smarter than you. So we're able to look at someone else and say, I know you're smart, but right now, eh, your thinking's off. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm smarter. And that's why it's not selfish for me to advance this. It's just right. Because I'm, I'm the smartest one in the room, and so we should do what the smartest one... And I'm, it's on our mind. It's, it's not selfish. It's just it's, it's the only sane thing that a person should do because I'm the smartest right now. I'm smarter at least than you. Or the other thing is I've worked harder, right? I, I've done this a lot of times. I come home from work, and I've, I've had a hard day. I've really worked really hard, and I just kind of assume, you know what? I, I worked harder than anybody else in this house today. So what does that mean? Serve me, right? Because <laughs> I've worked harder. See, so that's the, the selfish ambition is I want this, this, and this. But if you just say, hey, I want this, I want that, yeah, it sounds selfish. But if you can in your mind say, well, I worked so hard, I kind of deserve this, this, and this. This is how vain conceit and selfish ambition go together. Sometimes, you know, I hear people describe their life, and it's been a hard life, and, and basically they say, my life has been harder than yours, and so you should yield to me. Because I've had such a hard life, you've had such a good life, so the rest of my life, we need to flip it now. You need to serve me. I mean, you'll, you, people will actually put this in their mind. I've had, my life has been harder, and so I'm owed this, and I'm owed this, and I'm owed this. That, that's just vain conceit, self-promotion. Now, just because you think you deserve something, does everybody agree with you? No. You walk into your business, your place of employment on Monday, and say, you know what? Uh, over the weekend, I promoted myself to CEO. <laughs> How does that go? <laughs> well, actually, you've been massively demoted. You get to find another place to get a paycheck from, probably. So it doesn't matter if you promote yourself. Uh, and the problem with this is, is everyone else is busy doing the same thing. They're promoting themselves. So selfish ambition and vain conceit produce a whole lot of relational conflict and pressure. The only way to peace under this kind of pressure is humility. And this is just a perfect description of what it looks like, this posture looks like. You look not only to your own interests instead, but also to the interest of others. 
So the idea is, is instead of elevating yourself and looking down, you, you get down on your knees and you start, you start looking out for other people. What, what can I do to help other people? That's, that's a very different posture than selfish ambition and vain conceit. You try to think about, now what, what, what's their agenda? What's their ambition? And how can I help them do that? Now, if what they want is wrong, we don't help with that. That's called enabling, not helping. You don't help people advance a wrong agenda. You help them advance something that's really good for them. So just because someone says, hey, you're supposed to serve me, it doesn't mean that you should do that. Usually if they're demanding it, it probably means you shouldn't do it. But there's lots of, if you just look out, you can see all kinds of ways that you can really help advance someone else's interests. The thought usually at this point is, hey, but, but then who's going to look out for number one? <laughs> what about me? What about taking care of me? The assumption of this verse, don't worry, you'll do that. It says, look not only to your own interests. The assumption is, that's, what we, that's our baseline. That's what we tend to do. We look only to our own interests. So what it's saying is, take a break from yourself. You, you're gonna, there's going to be plenty of time for you to look out for what you need. Don't worry about that. Just take a break. Don't look only to your own interests. You know, take, take time to look out for the interests of other people. Now, Jesus was the one who leads in this. It says we're to take on his attitude, the attitude of Christ, who if anyone deserved something, it was him. I mean, he, he was, he's God in flesh. He, he, didn't, he didn't promote himself. That's, that's who he was, who he is. But instead of demanding status, he humbled himself and he took on a body. Now, if he had just done that, you know, just, just took on a human body and came to earth for 33 years and, and came as, as a king on earth, that that would be such a humbling act for him to do. But he did much more than that. He, he came as a normal man. In fact, some of the evidence in Scripture is that he wasn't that good looking. He didn't even show up as an attractive man. He showed up as a hmm, guy. No one's going to, oh, you know, let's, let's get him as a model. No, he, he, he didn't look that good. And then it got worse. He let himself be arrested and beaten and ridiculed and spit on and flogged and hung on a cross. Why? Because of our interests. I mean, if, if we were ever going to be forgiven, that, that was the price that had to be paid. There was no benefit in it for him. So he's the ultimate serve, bend down and serve, kneel and serve. And that brings us to posture number four, letting go. One of the, one of the signs of pride is white knuckles. You, you've got your grip on something intently. You, you're refusing to surrender something or someone to God. You just won't let it go. Because you know best, and I need this. I've got to hold on to this. And in arrogance, we white knuckle it. Here's what it says, verses 6 through 8. Who, speaking of Jesus now, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be white-knuckled, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, it, out of all the ways to die, this was probably the most humbling way to die, to hang up there for hours. I mean... 
Forget the physical pain, just the humiliation of it. As people could gather around and mock you and spit on you. and I mean, you didn't just die. It wasn't just a bullet to the head. It was a cross death. Ultimate humility. So to surrender to the Father's plan to save us, Jesus, first of all, had to take on a body. You know, first of all, talk about letting go. He was God. He is God. He went from being creator to being born. He went from tremendous, I mean, top power to tremendous weakness. And this, you have to be clear, this was not a one-time decision that Jesus made. It wasn't just a decision like, okay, I'll be born, and then for the next 33 years I'm going to wonder, did I make a mistake that I can't reverse? That's not the way it was. He, he remained fully God while he was in a human body. What that means is that at any point in time, he could have said, that's it. Enough humiliation. So hour after hour, day after day, week after week, year after year, for 33 years, he humbled himself. Every moment was a choice of humility for Jesus. At any time, he could have said, I've had enough. But why? Because he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He, he freely let it go. He let it go so that his sinless life could pay the debt of our sinful lives. And on the cross, this is, this is one of the things that just, I remember when I first understood this, I just, I just could hardly wrap my mind around it. On the cross, he endured the ridicule of those he had created. The breath that he was letting them have that moment, they were using to mock him. The saliva that was running down his face that they had spit on him was saliva that he had created. I mean, <laughs> there will never be a, a more extreme example of humility. Why? Because he was willing to let go for our sake. Now he invites us to let go of whatever it is we think we deserve because it's a whole lot less than what he let go. On the week um, after this last Christmas, my side of uh, the family gathered in Palm Springs for a family reunion that we had been planning for, well, about a year and a half. And um, it had only at that point been five days since the surgery that I had back at the end of the year to repair the detached retina in my left eye. But I was determined to go. I mean, this was this is something we'd all been looking forward to for so long, and I was determined to go. Most of my family, um, well, all of my um, siblings, my parents, all of my extended relatives, they all live in Canada. So I, I don't get to see them that much, some, but not that much. So on the Sunday, right after Christmas, our two kids and their spouses and our two granddaughters who were visiting in from Texas, um, we loaded up in a couple of cars to make the drive out to Palm Springs. Now, the doctor had warned me that um, I might not be able to make this trip because part of the surgery was to put an air bubble in, in, in the eye. I'm not going to get into details on that, so you can have lunch later today. <laughs> but there was an air bubble in my eye, and um, as you go to elevation, air expands. And so he said, it's not that much elevation to Palm Springs, so I think you'll be okay, but um, you might not be. He said, how would I know? He said, well, you'll know. <laughs> you'll know. So I got to right about where the 60 and the 10 come together, and I was, I was in a world of hurt. And I, just, I couldn't go on. So we took <laughs> everything out of our car, packed it in the other car, all of our kids, their spouses, our two granddaughters, got in the one car and went on to Palm Springs, and we turned around and went home. 
And I was, <laughs> we were both, we were, just, we were just devastated. It was one sad drive back home. There's not much to say. In fact, that night, we had dinner at McDonald's, which is a clear sign that you've given up on life. <laughs> it was just, whatever. I'll have another Big Mac. Take my life now. Doesn't matter. So for most of my adult life, my family, you know, has gathered without me. Not because they're excluding me, but I'm just not there. You know, so they're getting together for birthdays and anniversaries and Canadian Thanksgiving and other kinds of things. And I'm regularly hearing about the great time we're having. And, and now they're just two hours away and I can't get there. It just felt like God had put an elevation fence around me and said, now nah, you're not moving. It just felt so cruel to me. And I, I had absolutely no peace. No peace. All I felt was, well, it alternated between anger and sadness. And I struggled and I struggled and I struggled. And finally, on the second day, um, I was able to let go of Palm Springs. I mean, I, I was able to tell God, okay, I'll accept whatever. I just surrendered. I wasn't happy. I didn't feel any better. I was still sad. But, but I got to the point where I could say, God, I, I'm going to trust whatever you decide to do. I'll let go of this. The next day, I woke up, and it seemed to me that the bubble had shrunk just a little bit. I don't know if it was just my imagination, but we decided to, to, to try again the following day. And um, we, it was very painful, but we made it. So I was able to be there for two of the five days. And I don't know if, if, if I was able to make it, you know, because I had surrendered to God and so he lifted the barrier, whatever, whatever it was. I mean, I've surrendered in other things in the past and things have only gotten worse. So I know that, you know, just because you surrender doesn't mean God says, okay, life is now perfect. So I don't know why we were able to make it finally. But what I do know is this that there is no peace without surrender. There's just, there's just no peace. And there have been other times where I've just fought God and fought God, and I've been white-knuckling something, and I just can have no peace until I finally say, okay. Sometimes he's taken it. Sometimes he's let me keep it. But there's no peace without surrender. So where are the white knuckles in your life right now? I mean, what is it that you're grasping onto? You can probably tell by the desperate kind of thoughts and the fear and the things that keep you up at night. What are you refusing to let go of? It doesn't have to be a bad thing. I mean, going to Palm Springs was a great thing. It takes humility to let go for us because when we let go, what we're really saying is, God, you know what's best. And for me to let go of Palm Springs and say, God, you know what's best, it was really hard because it's like, I don't have to, I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of why this would be best. Why couldn't I go? What have I done doesn't mean I deserve this. You just have to let it go. Now, honestly, as I look back on it now, we spent two days there, and, you know, I was still recovering from surgery, and, you know, my family's really active, and that about wiped me out those two days. So I thought, you know, I don't know if I could have done five days. God probably knew that I needed three days of rest and more silence, and I could do two days. I don't know. Maybe that's it. The first word of each of these four postures ends with I-N-G. It's not look up once. It's looking up. It's not walk behind once. It's not follow once. It's 
not kneel down and help someone once, not let go of one thing. It's looking up, walking behind, kneeling down, letting go. Humility is not a posture that we contort ourselves into once and take a picture and say, you know, I was humble once. No, it's, it's an ongoing exercise. It's, it's, it's a set of these four decisions that we just have to keep making over and over and over again because pride just keeps rising up. So the four next steps that I've got for you today are all based on these four postures. I would, I would invite you to pick at least one of these to work on this week. The first one, these are on the back of your connection card or the bottom of your listening guide. The first one is pick a daily time and a place to meet with God. Maybe you've done this in the past and well, the whole Christmas season just blew your pattern out of the water and you haven't been consistent in the new year at all. Well, you need to pick a time and a place. I mean, if, you're, if your goal is to spend some time looking up today, but it's not when and where, it's not going to happen. It's got to be, okay, when tomorrow? Where tomorrow? So pick a time and a place to meet with God. Again, if, if you'd like some more input on that, sign up for the uh, growing class that's on the 7th and the 14th of February. Number two, decide where and who I will follow. Doesn't have to be this church, but pick one. You, know, you don't have to pick one right now, but go through a process and decide, I'm, I'm going I'm to land on one. Where is that? And then over time, who am I going to follow in that church? Number three, serve someone this week. Just take a break from yourself. Try to figure out who, who is it that I can serve. What can I practically do? It may not be impressive. Just something real practical you can do to help someone with what their agenda is. And then number four, identify your white knuckles and let go. Get to the point this week where you can say, okay, God, I'll let go. And if, you, if you're like me, you let go and you grab it back again, then you got to let go again. So you may have to keep doing this for several days, sometimes weeks, just let go. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we are... Well, we're arrogant people, and you know this. You know exactly what goes on in our minds. You know the thoughts we have, our vain conceit, uh, reasons why we deserve what we think we deserve. But in spite of ourselves, Jesus, you humbled yourself, and you took on a body, and you, you allowed yourself to be ridiculed and hung on a cross for us. And now we follow you. We follow you in this life and in the one to come. And we want to, to take on the same attitude that you have, the humble attitude. I pray you, you'd, you'd put your finger directly on one of these four that you want us to work on first. That you would give us clear examples of, and ideas of what we can do this week to get in the posture of humility. I pray for those in this room that are under tremendous pressure right now. God, I pray that you'd help them to get low. That you'd give them peace in the middle of the pressure. We pray this now in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.